Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to the 64th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good afternoon to you, Matt. Good afternoon, Mark. This has been an eventful September, has it not? Yeah, it has. Definitely hasn't been a quiet September. No, I mean, we had this, you know, run up over the summer, Labor Day hits, and then we get some selling in the first couple weeks here of September. Yeah, yeah, and it uh, it feels a little different just because things have been so steady for the past couple months after we got past the first few months of the year. But it's a um, reminder that stocks can go down, right? And just to remind people too, on a seasonality basis, um, you know, seasonally September tends to be pretty weak for the market. So this is not uncommon, even though people think that the markets are going to be falling into another correction or bear market territory you know this has happened several times in the past in september so kind of feels like it's the extremes either everyone's extremely bullish or extremely pessimistic right yeah i just think it's everyone's so stimulated this these days with everything right at their fingertips nothing's really in the middle anymore nothing's neutral yeah i know i know everything's one way or the other there's no in between so. Well, I got some interesting data points. I know you do, too. So yeah. this will be a good podcast. Yeah, I think it will be, too. So we'll start with the uh, recap of the performance for the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on September 21st. S&P 500 index is down 6.26% for the month and up 1.66% for the year. The Dow down 4.5% for the month and down 4.71% for the year. The NASDAQ down 8.34% for the month and up 20.29% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index is down 4.83% for the month and down 10.71% for the year. The Vanguard International ETF X United States down 2.58% for the month and down 6.45% for the year. Three-month T-bill yielding 0.1%, the two-year Treasury note yielding 0.14%, and the 10-year Treasury bond yield is sitting at 0.67%. So there's been continued market consolidation and uh, sell-offs from the past week, as we had mentioned in our previous podcast about the previous week, and as we mentioned, has been a common theme throughout September. But I think we should put this in perspective for people, Matt, because as of the market close on September 17th of this year, the S&P 500 index was at the same level it was at a month prior to that. I appreciate you bringing that up, Mark, because bringing that perspective, when people just see, oh, look at the performance so far here in September. But when you take into account the run over the summer, specifically in August, we're just retracing back roughly a month ago. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when I see people getting up in arms about, you know, this consolidation, this this dip, this sell-off, call it what you will, I take these things as healthy. This is what the market needs to do. Mm-hmm. It flushes out the weak hands, put the stock back in the strong hands, let's take this thing up. I mean, I'm just paraphrasing, I'm not saying it's going to go up, mm-hmm. but historically, this is kind of the movements of the market, the him yeah. and haw with this. 
Yeah, yeah, they do. So this is, I think, in in both of our opinions, a much needed pullback. Yeah. Um, I just think we're in an environment that you know pullbacks tend to ha- happen quicker and uh, you know more sharp than they have in the past, which is okay, I think. Yeah, it's the escalator up and the elevator down. It's right. just the way the market is right now. Right. Exactly. Um, and other news: consumer spending continues to recover. Uh, retail sales grew by 0.6 percent in August, so that's another positive for consumer spending. Now that builds on some of our data points from last week about the mm-hmm. consumer, which were positive too. Yeah, so that's good. Yep. And then in addition to that, um, the job market is also continuing to improve with the four-week moving average of weekly initial jobless claims declining for a seventh straight week. So uh, that is very positive that people are getting back to work, and we hope to see that trend continue. Yep, all leads down to consumer spending, consumer confidence. And you and I say it how many times on this podcast, Mark? Two-thirds of our economy is consumer spending-led. It's positive to see these people slowly but consistently go back to work And like you, I hope this data continues in this direction. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So starting off with uh, tweets, articles, and research from the week that caught my eye. This was an interesting one. This was an article on RIA Intel by Michael Thrasher titled, uh, To clients, agreeing on politics with their advisor is mattering more. Interesting. You picked this one. So I just want to read a quick snippet. And an FYI, I am not a fan of surveys. I think that just the sample size of where they're pulling these people, just it just boggles my mind. That When's they the last come time you with, did a survey, Mark? It's, I can't even remember. I don't even know if I've even done one. <laughs> to be honest, I just I, I just don't. When, when I see all these surveys out there that, you know, 80% of the American population thinks this, it's like I've never ever been tested for one of these surveys before so all right listeners you gotta email mark and tell us if you are a frequent surveyor uh answerer or if you ever gotten asked to be in one of these surveys please all right so it's his email is mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com email mark share your stories about surveys because this is hilarious yeah so again take the percentages um that i list here with a grain of salt but if this is true um i think that there's we got a bigger problem on our hands but anyways okay, I'm listening. To read let's do a, this. a quick snippet here it's gonna be good so a recent hartford study found that 75 percent of investors now report discussing politics with their advisors which is fine no problem with that 57 percent believe it is important that they align on political views and 44 percent would outright switch financial advisors if he or she did not align with their own political views the results were particularly strong amongst younger clients, with 91% of millennials stating that an alignment of political views with their advisor was important compared to only 48% of older generations, and that 68% would consider a new advisor if discovering they weren't aligned compared to only 27% of older generations. So again, Take these numbers with a grain of salt, but we've talked about this before on the podcast, and I personally think it's ridiculous if this is what's actually going on. Um, And it's no different than having political conversations with friends. You're not going to get rid of a friend because they have a different political view than you, right? I think think it's encouraging for the advisor and the client to have a healthy relationship and conversation about politics. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But if the advisor or the client want to sever the relationship just because they don't align politically, 
I think that you got way more problems on your hand than, you know, addressing the actual uh, reason why you have an advisor in the first place. I agree with everything you're saying, Mark. I have yet to have any issues discussing politics with a client. Mm -hmm. You know, when we are discussing politics, we are usually focused on, say, the economic side of of the, the politic involved. So let's take the Trump administration as an example. You know, we tend to talk about how um, their economic, their taxation plan, their regulation plan kind of affects the market. Same with a potential Biden win. You know, what does he propose tax-wise? What does he propose regulation-wise? That tends to be the focus of my conversation. Mm-hmm. And I usually say, hey, leaving the personal politics out of it, how does it economically affect the portfolio? I've never had any sort of issue or negative feedback from a client regarding how we kind of handle that. Mm -hmm. And I've also have never had a client outright say, hey, who do you personally vote for? And if (laughs) I verbalize that and they come back like, well, I can't have you work for me anymore. That's Mm -hmm. never happened to me. And so these numbers seem highly, highly inflated. Yeah. And maybe and I'm assuming this is um, and it is it says it's a recent study. So maybe People are answering more because it's like this because it's an election year. I don't know. Um, I just wish I just wish the country wasn't so uh, polar opposite on having the ability to have a um, a reasonable um, conversation about politics without people walking away, not really liking the other person or wanting to sever their friendship. That just to me, that's such a foreign concept. Yeah, I just don't get it. Yeah. Yeah, me too. So I'm hoping this this survey or study is wrong. Um, so I'm going to go with that because well, I hate surveys. You know what? We're, we're, we're talking about it. We're talking about it in the podcast. Hopefully it motivates somebody to have a conversation with a loved one or a friend that they differ on and they can agree to disagree. Yeah, exactly. Maybe this will motivate Yeah, them. I hope so. I hope so. Um, next was another tweet from Chamath uh, Palihapitiya on September 14th. And we talked about some of his tweets before on this podcast. And this one goes like this. Investing 101. Successful investing is all about behavior and psychology. You can have the best model or analysis in the world, but if you panic, you lose. Said differently, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. I have seen that over time, as you zoom out, sanity always prevails. By creating some rules and living by them, you give yourself the best chance of not losing momentum in moments of chaos. Well put. Yeah, so I think this just sums up, you know, two things for me it sums up 2020 pretty well yes and uh number two you're not you know you're not hiring someone or working with someone to have them outperform the market for 35 years in a row right i don't think that's the point of it i think having someone that can help you develop your plan and follow that plan and not deviate from it is a benefit because if it's your own money there's an emotional aspect to it. But if it's your, if it's not, you can get someone's unbiased opinion on helping you develop that plan. Not even saying that people have to go out and hire an advisor. Again, I think I mentioned last week on the podcast, just have a friend or a family member hold you accountable after sharing with them what your plan is for investing and your finances going forward and make sure that you're sticking to it. Um, so I think that's a big part of why you know we do what we do is to help people from the psychological and emotional aspect of it. Um, you know, it's a big part of what we do. Yeah, it's huge. It's huge because you could have the smartest 
person in the world with the best model in the world. And we've seen time and time again that it doesn't work 24 seven. And, you know, there's no holy grail when it comes to investing. Right. So um, I think it's the battle of self is, is the biggest thing that people tend to struggle with. Well put, my friend. Well put. I cannot disagree on that one. It was funny. <laughs> I, I'm throwing that out there because I uh, saw someone recently who listens to our podcast on a regular basis, and he's like, I, I wish you guys kind of would go after a little bit more or, uh, you know, kind of show if you guys do differ. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, we don't, I don't differ on that one. Yeah we, don't, yeah, we don't differ on a lot. We don't differ on a lot. We'll try to throw some jabs in there in the near future, maybe. But it's tough just because we don't. Um, moving on to the last thing that I had. So uh, this was a stat from BTN Research, and they said the World Health Organization declared the COVID-19 outbreak a pandemic on March 11th of 2020. So that was the official date. Mm -hmm. Okay. In the six months from March 11th through last September 11th, 2020, the S&P 500 has gained 23% total return. Hmm. Okay. So... Again, I'm not here to spike the football. I just want to point this out. There's nothing wrong with spiking the football. (laughs) If you go back to episode number 31, we discussed previous epidemics, pandemics, and how it affected the stock market. I remember that one. Performance. I remember that. So it lists out, you know, the one month, three month, and six month performance of HIV, AIDS, SARS, um, swine flu, MERS, Ebola, measles, Zika. Um, we posted that chart in our show stuff. notes. Yeah, it's back in our show notes. But again, it's just you have to take the noise out of it, right? So the, I, this is what I love about stats like this is because it gives you one month, three month, and six month returns, but it doesn't give you the day to day to day to day returns, right? Yep. So, so in so, essence, it's once the pandemic, well, I'm sorry, once the outbreak is labeled a pandemic, this is showing you in all those historical examples what the return of the S&P was one month after, mm-hmm. three months after, and six months after. Yeah, and okay. this and this uh, graphic from Charles Schwab and FactSet shows that the average six-month performance after the, the epidemic or pandemic label was 8.5%. And we're sitting with 23 right now. Yes. Um, on this stat. Yeah. 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 Interesting. So, again, now, you know, I know in hindsight, it may look easy that the market was going to be back near all-time highs but go back then it was not easy no no it was not it was not easy so uh, i'll turn it over to you all right listeners i got a couple things this week the first is an update on um investor sentiment so just as we kind of alluded to you know human nature emotions play into investing right and so there is a very popular um survey on just on sentiment and usual questions are, are you bullish, bearish, or neutral? It's, mm-hmm. it's only one of three potential outcomes. And with the market selling off recently, bullish sentiment readings have improved, Mark, from a depressed 24% approximately up to 32%. It's still low, though, compared to history. I think this is a good contrarian indicator. And I'm mm-hmm. going to tell you why. Bullishness tends to kind of peak with the market. And the fact that we're starting to see some improvement tells me that people are starting to see, in my opinion, some value in certain areas, whatever they're watching, and the bullish sentiment has come up. But heck, there's been times when bullish sentiment has got above the 50% range, and we're sitting at 32, which tells me we got some way to go before sentiment has 
peaked from a bullish standpoint. I take this as positive. Yeah. Your comments. Yeah, no, I think I, I think it does as well. Uh, I'm actually kind of surprised that it increased during the sell-off, just given the environment that we're in. People think the world's going to end the next day whenever we get a down 1% day in the markets. So I do think that this is, you know, this is one point for the people that are in the bull camp. Yep. And I think that there's so much cash on the sidelines that every time these kind of corrections or consolidations come, you know, the people who say, well, I'm going to buy when that dip comes, you know, you and I know statistically on average, they tend not to do that. Mm -hmm. But um, this chart is uh, listeners on our show notes. You can go to jessupwealthmanagement.com. You can hover over the podcast tab and you will see the link for the show notes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mark, I got two more things I'd like to discuss with the listeners. Uh, The next is from the National Association of Realtors on September 14th. There are uh, there were 400,000 fewer existing homes for sale nationwide at the end of July. And it was at one point five million. Then there were at the end of July of 2019. That's a drop of 21% on a year over year basis. And I think that's fueling higher prices. When you have such limited supply out there, prices have moved higher. Just wanted to see I thought it was an interesting statistic showing how tight inventory is compared to a year ago. Thoughts, comments? Yeah, I mean, I, I really don't have anything, you know, to say about this stuff. It's just interesting what's been going on in the in the real estate market. Um, just giving everything everything that had been going on, you know, it's kind of funny look not funny, but looking back to the great financial crisis in 07 and 08, you know, the housing market obviously was in shambles and we fast forward to the next recession that we had and the housing markets holding up relatively well. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of the way the housing market held up in the tech bubble of 00 to 02. The housing market was pretty strong in that time. Mm-hmm. And I would still subscribe to the fact that the great financial crisis, one of the greatest contributors to it, were people having the ability to get a mortgage without proving their income. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I had to pinpoint any major issue back at that point, that was it. So are people able to get mortgages now? Yeah, but guess what? You got to prove your income. Right. And I think right. that's just changed the mm-hmm. dynamics of it. Yeah. All right. I got one last one. Okay. Uh, Mark, this is from Bill McBride's uh, blog. It's called Calculated Risk. Um, and um, we'll tag this uh, when we post this. But um, he does a blog, Calculated Risk, September 14th. He had a chart from Open Table. Uh, showing year-on-year change in restaurant reservations. From the end of February, um, that drop went down to 100% because no one could could eat indoors. Now, it recovered in June being down 60% pre-COVID. Today, it's around down about 40% uh, pre-COVID. And dining out continues to slowly improve, Mark. And we're going to post this chart to our show notes as well. And I take this as a positive that the consumer is starting to get out. The consumer is starting to spend. We're seeing that in real data. And this is another data point that that's, that confirms that. Comments, questions, on, on, or well, statements you want to make. Yeah, I think in this just kind of trickles over into other areas of the economy, too. So people you know, go out to dinner and then they want to go get a drink. So they go to a bar or or they're eating dinner near a mall. So they go to the mall after and go shopping. So I think this is indicative of, you know, us slowly but surely getting back to normal. And I think this is evidence of 
the market pricing that in three months ago. I know that we've talked several times, and I know I probably bore people talking about this all the time, but the market's forward looking. So when the market was so strong three, four months ago, people were like, why, 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 why? And it's data points like this that are just coming to fruition now that we are getting closer and closer to getting back to a normal environment. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the chart, it shows some subsections of the country. I'll just name them off what's on it. It has the chart for Texas, New York, Georgia, Florida, California, the United States as a whole, and Arizona. And can you believe it's not there now? It's down 20% from the peak for Florida. But Florida um, in August actually was at zero. Mm -hmm. So they were at the levels of people eating out that they were pre-COVID temporarily. Right. Pretty encouraging. Yeah, very encouraging. All right. I'll send it back to you, Mark, for the financial planning topic of the week. So this week's about Social Security. So this was an article from Think Advisor titled 14 Big Social Security Mistakes That Clients Make. Oh, this should be a good one. Yeah. So this was back on uh, September 15th. And, you know, Social Security is one of the most complex financial decisions that someone has to make because no one truly knows how long they're going to live. So it really is a guessing game. And it's one of those questions that we as advisors get all the time. When's the perfect time to take Social Security? And unfortunately, most of the time, there's not a clear cut answer. So I just wanted to go through a few of these. I'm not going to go through all 14, but uh, I just picked out five that I liked best. And we can kind of talk about some of these. Yep. I have not read this yet. I have not seen this yet. So I'll give you my uh, unfiltered raw uh, response. Okay. Um, the first one is this. A major mistake that married couples make is looking at Social Security as an independent decision for each spouse. Married couples should strategize their filing to maximize their protection if one spouse predeceases the other. This is usually accomplished by waiting as long as possible for the higher earning spouse to file for Social Security. Remember, if one spouse dies, the survivor generally only receives the highest payment of each of them. So what are your thoughts there? Um, I'm not opposed. I think you got to take into account uh, family history and their current health um, needs to be two big factors that I like to discuss with clients. Mm -hmm. um, so I think this is one kind of data point to consider. Okay. And I would throw out there just to responding with my initial thought mm -hmm. that we would have to include their current health situation and their family history in addition to what you just mentioned. Okay. Um, the second one is a client did not realize that she could claim on her ex-husband's benefit to receive spousal income when deferring her own until 70, even though they were divorced. There are a number of rules surrounding spousal benefits after divorce, including being married for more than 10 years and divorced for at least two years. But it is worth seeing if this would provide a better cash flow. This can be true even if the ex is deferring Social Security. So a common misconception that I see is that, you know, because you got divorced, you're not entitled to any of your ex's benefit, but that's not necessarily the case. So usually it makes sense to run the math if taking your ex's benefit, um, you know, is better than yours. Absolutely. To and and the folks at Social Security are, are very good to work with regarding these, these calculations to run. Mm -hmm. uh, I've gotten very positive feedback uh, from clients who have, you know, called to run these types of raw numbers to give to us. So I think that there is just a general misconception in the marketplace 
that, you know, dealing with Social Security or dealing with the IRS is is horrible. I, I can I tend to kind of get that perception. Mm-hmm. And in reality, it's that's not what I see. Right. I just want to throw that out there. I mean, I, I wanted to almost defend Social Security and the IRS here because I have not seen that. Right. So exactly. I think it'd be easy to reach out to them and say, hey, help me run these scenarios. And they're they're great. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, I do want people to know that just because, you know, because let's take, for example, um, you know, one of the spouses was a homemaker because they were raising a family and the other spouse was the breadwinner they get divorced, you know, the spouse that was home with the kids isn't just, you know, thrown under the bus here. They Absolutely. still are entitled to some of the benefits uh, through Social Security. So Absolutely. And I'm telling you, the uh, it doesn't matter, you know, who's the one, quote unquote, making the money per se. You know, at the end of the day, they're both equally working hard. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, number three is hands down. It is, and this is, you know, the worst mistake this person is claiming, hands down, it is claiming too early because they don't want to leave money on the table. And again, this is just one of those ones that just depends because, you know, if you claim early at 62 and you only live until 65, then you made the right decision. But if you claim at 62 and you only, or excuse me, and you live until 105, then you probably didn't make the right decision. Yeah, my biggest uh, issue I have with people taking it at 62 is the fact that they really don't understand that if they continue to have earned income, it does degrade that benefit until their full retirement age. Yeah, And I think that that is one of the biggest mistakes that I see people make Mm -hmm. when they take it early. Right. Okay. Right. Uh, The next one is that some people claim Social Security early out of fear that the program will be canceled or used to, oh, excuse me, let me restart that. Some people claim Social Security early out of the fear that the program will be canceled or to use the funds to supplement lifestyle expenses. This can be a mistake because the Social Security benefits are permanently reduced by claiming early. If someone has a long life in retirement, that permanent reduction can harm them or their surviving spouses. So again, it kind of goes along with, you know, the, the previous one is claiming too early that, you know, I don't know if everyone understands, but if you lock in that, that lower benefit at that early age, you don't, your benefit doesn't go up, Mm-mm. you know, you get a cost of living adjustment, right? You get a cola. One. Yeah. You get a cost of living adjustment, but you know, it, it's, it doesn't work that, you know, once you hit your full retirement age, then you get it resets. Your, yeah, exactly. No, or once you hit 70. And just as a, a reminder for people, the benefit every every year you wait past your full retirement age to receive Social Security, you get about an 8% bump in your benefit per year for and the waiting. the max is up to age 70. Right, exactly. Um, the last thing I wanted to mention was, and th- I thought this was a really interesting one that a lot of people don't think about, is the biggest mistake is failing to create the secure login to access the personal Social Security account. Everyone should do this, even if you're decades away from retirement, to prevent identity theft and keep track of your earnings history. Registering for a Social Security account prevents someone else from creating an account in your name and gaining access to your personal information. I love that. So that's good. And a lot of people 
don't even know where they can go and check what their estimated benefits are. So if you go to ssa.gov, you can create an account if you don't have one, or obviously you can log in if you've been on there to create an account before, and you can get an estimated benefit statement that will project what your benefit will be at age 62, your full retirement age, and age 70. Yep, you're right. And, uh, you know, they used to mail these pretty consistently back in the day, but now um, it's just from what I've heard, they don't do that as much anymore. Um, so you can create an account online and access that whenever uh, you need to. And especially when you're creating your financial plan with your advisor, um, that plays a huge role. Yeah, in he or your she's going to need that information. Yeah. yeah. So if you haven't, I would highly encourage people to go to ssa.gov. Get familiar with the website, create an account um, so that account is created by you and not somebody else, um, but also to get uh, a general picture of what your retirement benefits from Social Security could look like in the future. And as a reminder, listeners, Aaron Kramer in our office, he is our um, in-house paraplanner. You know, he focuses a lot on trying to uh, help clients with Social Security maximization strategies. So if this is something you have any questions about, highly encourage you to call into the office and uh, speak with Aaron, uh, and he could definitely um, walk you through that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Anything else before we leave it there for the week? I do not, sir. I do not. Um, We're about about to end the quarter here coming up next week and then uh, start the the final and fourth quarter of 2020, my friend. Mm -hmm. Which, you know... On a uh, seasonality basis, tends to be pretty strong for the markets. It does um, going Correct. into the holiday season. Yep. Um, so we'll see what the market does here to finish out the rest of the quarter, and hopefully, we have uh, a better November and December or October, November and December than what we've experienced so far here in September. So with that being said, we'll leave it there for the week and be back with you next week. But thank you very much for tuning in to the 64th episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. We hope you have a wonderful rest of the week and a fun weekend. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. 
Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.